Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. Children in the U.S. are suffering from homelessness at an increasing rate in recent years. According to a new report from the National Center on Family Homelessness, one in 30 kids are homeless in America. Today on the program, Walter Biondi joins us to discuss this alarming trend and how he went from a street kid to author, director of U.S. Marshal Services, a commissioner for U.S. Customs Service, and a chief inspector of Interpol. I wrote Jeremiah's Tale, which was a nominal bestseller, and also I recently finished and had published The Promiscuous Puppeteer. And uh, what can you tell us about that book and what inspired it? Oh, the uh, inspiration partly was my past. Um, the book itself is about a, a Mexican Native American woman uh, who was a remarkable person, of course it's fictional, uh, who had a, a sordid past, a promiscuous past, an early life that gave her knowledge, skills, and abilities to be able to uh, manipulate and control people and events, and she used a lot of her street sense in order to do that. And in that process, she became a better person from having been a person with a sordid past and began to develop a charity that helped uh, benefit Native American communities and people. But she continued to use people from her past to help compromise uh, people who were looking to be compromised, if you will, uh, in ways where ultimately she was able to benefit the charity. And ultimately, I think it was a major uh, precious metals uh, exploration company that she assisted in getting out of a lot of difficulties because of her skills. She was able to help them succeed. Well, great, and congratulations on the Thank book. Thank you. And you said that part of your, your past has influenced the book. And and can you talk about your your childhood? And I understand that you were homeless at one point as a young boy. I was. And, and sadly, today I'm told there's almost 1 in 30 children are, are homeless. There's a new report coming out uh, in the next few days about that. I was one, but I, I ran away when I was 15, and I consequently suffered uh, from my own poor decisions at that age. <clears throat> it's a stage of life where, uh, at least from my perspective, where I felt a euphoric, I guess, way of saying it, a uh, sense of freedom, unsuper unsupervised freedom, and hit the streets thinking that life was going to be wonderful now that I was on my own. But reality quickly settled in with no money, no food, no heat, or drinking water, uh, no television or radio, no close friends or family. And I was always hiding, looking to try to not be discovered. And you know, consequently, as time went by, I dug a deeper hole for myself where I became sick quite often. I was starving. Uh, dehydration, hypothermia was common in the winter. And my mind began to turn towards trying to survive as opposed to having fun as a 15-year-old street homeless child. And I can remember... Uh, you know, in times like that, when you're going through something like that, how I wondered whether or not I could ever pull myself out of that deep hole I dug for myself. And I realized that, yes, there was. And it was uh, the occasion was when I was sitting in a jail cell looking through the bars, and I remembered something that my uncle had told me years before, that you are what you think most about. And I had been thinking all these negative thoughts about life and decided that I needed to start to try to do something with my life, and I did. And ultimately, I was able to pull myself up by the bootstraps and climb back out of that hole that I had dug for myself. And I had a 
reasonably successful life. And how were you able to climb out of that? What were some of the... Well, it was primarily a, a frame of mind. My frame of mind as a runaway was to not get detected, not, not to be arrested, not to go to a de- juvenile detention facility. And so I was always looking to stay out of the limelight, to not, not be found. But then I began to realize that I never got past the ninth grade in the public school system. And so I was sitting in jail thinking about those words, uh, you are what you think most about. And I began to wonder if I could possibly take a GED high school test. And I did, and I passed it. And then I began to acquire uh, part-time jobs where I could make a little bit of money and where I could afford then maybe a one-room boarding house room. And I did, and I was able to graduate from uh, stealing bread to exist as I, as I had, as did Jean Valjean in the play Les Miserables, and to find a, a way of paying for some of the things that I needed in life. And then I went on to the Navy, and I began to take some college courses. And when I got out of the Navy, I went into college, and, and I graduated with a near 4.0 average after all those years of working and going to school at the same time. And I passed my law school uh, exams and was admitted to a law school and was employed by the U.S. Justice Department and gradually began to climb up through the ranks in the U.S. Marshal Service and ultimately became one of their directors. And I became one of the commissioners of the U.S. Customs Service, a chief inspector for Interpol. And to my shock and surprise, I, I ended up being selected by the president as the distinguished executive of the year. So it was going from, in a matter of years, going from being a homeless street kid with no hope at all to changing the way I looked at life, and that was to try to think positively about the things that I needed to try to do, to set goals, to try to find ways of moving forward, never looking back. And I I, I remember the words that I wrote down when I was in college at that time that I, I was inspired and motivated, but I needed to aspire to something more. And aspiration, I wrote down these words, aspiration for me was not the moth that's drawn by the light of the nearest light bulb. No. It was for me as if a moth to be drawn by the light of the most distant star, to reach further, to try harder, to stop watering the weeds in my life and start to water the flowers. And so that's what I did. I, I vowed not to look back. I did never wanted to go back to the way I had been living. And I wanted to try to progress in my life. And thankfully, with the help of others along the way, I had a very successful career. Well, that's quite incredible and quite an amazing, some amazing accomplishments. From your early experiences as a child, do you think that those uh, in some, some way impacted you or influenced your success later on? Well, there was. And, and I remember uh, after I got out of jail for the last time, um, I was almost 18. I, I went to my father, who had uh, been an FBI agent, and I knew he was extremely disappointed with me, and he hadn't seen me in a long time. And I said to him, I felt, first let me tell you, I felt horrible for what I had done. And I knew I was on the right path to trying to correct the wrongs that I had done. And I remember saying to him that I will do everything in my power to never disappoint him again. And I wrote those words down so that I would always remember what I said to my father. He had always tried to instill in me right and wrong, 
uh, my mother as well. I made peace with them and have had a wonderful relationship with them ever since. But the early lessons in life were good ones. I wasn't raised in a way where I didn't know right from wrong. I knew. Uh, I was just a 15-year-old who was rebelling and thought that I could do better on my own, to my mistake, and I realized almost too late when I was faced with, at times, even life-and-death situations where I wondered whether I was going to spend the life of in jails, in and out of jails, uh, perhaps meet with an early demise, or was I going to try to do something with my life? And so I drew upon an awful lot of what I had learned when I was young about the difference between right and wrong, responsibility, obligations, uh, accountability, and that I needed to start to think about what I was going to do to improve my situation. I had no coaches. I had nobody that I could lean on. No one there to lift me up and brush me off and point and push me forward. I had to do it on my own. And so those early lessons in life and the lessons from being on the street taught me that I had to do something better than just walk the streets trying not to get detected. And consequently, I went from being a person who, you could say, was hunted to becoming one of those who were the hunters, looking for those who were trying to avoid being found or discovered. Right. So I imagine then that... that uh, really influenced or really helped you out in, yes, it did. in a lot of your endeavors and your career endeavors. And what was it like on the streets? And I guess trying to understand how much people offered you help and how much people actually were out to hurt you and uh, how you navigated that. You know, it, it I mean, it was difficult I, because I didn't have the street smarts knowing how to avoid difficulties. But there were other people in the streets, most of them were older than me. There were itinerants, uh, people who were living off the streets themselves, and they were always looking for opportunities, and they saw me as a 15-, 16-year-old as being vulnerable. And more often than not, when I was found by those people, they were demanding money from me. And I was lucky if I had nickels or dimes in my pocket. I used to play an old beat-up guitar in street corners and hope people would throw pennies or nickels or dimes my way. And what little change I had, they knew. They saw me out there. And they would approach me later in the day and say, how much money do you have on you? And so I would be robbed repeatedly. And when I did have some food, I tried to share it with those that, not only ones that I feared, but the ones who seemed to have a little interest in, in, in me to the extent that I felt that I could share what I had with others. But it was never much. I can remember a can of Spam that I was able to afford to buy. And I, I remember sitting down with another street itinerant, and splitting that in half with my fingers and giving him half, and I had half, and that was our meal for the day. I know that there were people, I remember one time I was so badly beaten by two people who thought that I had alcohol, which I didn't, um, and they beat me severely uh, trying to get me to tell them where I hid some alcohol. And I ended up in the hospital and was in serious condition. They thought I had a ruptured spleen. Um, but I was able to get out of that situation, went back to the streets, but feeling even more demoralized and feeling as though I was slipping even deeper into the abyss um, where I had this wretched life of nothing, no one, nothing in my pockets, and feeling more and more desperate as time went by. And, but as I mentioned pre previously, I ended up feeling as though I wasn't going to live this life forever. I had to do something about it. And thankfully, those words that were told to me sometime previously, that you are what you think most about, 
serve me. And that came from an Earl Nightingale uh, speech that he gave, and it was called The Strangest Secret. I've since listened to it many times, and, and glad that I heard it when I did. I, I used to lean against the library door at night to absorb some warmth through the glass just so I would stop shivering. But I would go in and out of that library using their bathroom facilities to get water. And the librarian there would wink at me, knowing that I was a runaway, and, and she just allowed me to come and go. But I asked her at one point to help me find something about those words written by that man, and she did. And she put, sat me down at a phonograph and put a record on, put a headphone set on my head, and she said, listen. And I listened to it. It was maybe 15 minutes long. And I felt that proverbial fire in the belly begin, begin in, inside me where I felt like, this is good. I like listening to this. This is helping me. And I remember that as being a pivotal moment in my life where I was trying to survive on the streets and not doing well at it at all. And then at that moment, it seems like everything began to change for me. Well, that's a beautiful story. What city was this? Allentown, Pennsylvania. Okay, so it does get really cold there in the winter. <laughs> I, I can personally <laughs> tell. Yes, it does. <laughs> right. And, and so... What are your thoughts about the situation today with so many homeless kids, and why do you think it's gotten to this point? One in, one in, one in 30? Yes, there's a report coming out, I believe, in a few days about this. Uh, the numbers are, are astoundingly high, much, much higher than it was when I was a street kid. Um, I can't say I can put my finger on it, all the reasons why. I'm sure that economics, personal as well as uh, local or regional economics has a large role to play in what happens. Uh, but there's also the usual conflicts that occur within families. I, I believe that some dysfunctional families are uh, reasons for why children want to live on their own or run away. Another is that a lot of the younger people are not thinking properly, making poor decisions. Um, I, I can recall uh, working with others, and I've helped a lot of others over the years, and I'm still working with two even to this day. Um, I can recall that they would say to me things along the lines of what I felt back when I was a street child. And what seems to be a common thread in that whole process is it's either economic or it's dysfunction within the family. And my first book, Jeremiah's Tale, speaks to that. And because of my past, I was able to understand what was happening uh, to a family in real life and then to write a fictional story about it. And, and so I can't exactly put my finger on all the reasons why it's happening, but it's getting worse. And, and I can only think that it's, it's those two things that are the primary reasons, one being economic and the other being dysfunctional between family members. Great. And what about drug use also? Yes, I'm sure that plays a part in it. Uh, thankfully, I never got involved in that. Um, but drug use, I'm sure, is a part of uh, what draws kids into slipping down into that abyss and alcohol, too, uh, and makes them feel as though uh, life is better uh, with drugs and with alcohol and makes them want to associate with people who usually are not the right people. And if that's what they're thinking and they're the music in their life, the dress that they wear during their life, the attitudes that they acquire from associating with certain people, all has some influence on the behavior. And it goes to that same thing I said earlier, 
that you are what you think most about. If you think mostly negative thoughts or think about a way of life most of the time that you want, and it happens to be negative, then that's the way that person tends to be in their decision-making and their lack of accomplishment. And conversely, if they think positively and associate with better people and have goals and try to work forward instead of working backwards, then if they think mostly about those kinds of things, then their life will generally, usually, be better. So what are some solutions that you can recommend to help put a, a dent in the homeless problem we have in America? And, and mm, There's no easy solution, I'm yeah. afraid. Yeah. Um, the economic issue speaks, to it, speaks for itself. It's a matter of uh, finding a way to help folks get a new start again financially. Sometimes there's families that are out on the street without a home and their children are with them, and that's a different situation, a different category of homelessness. In other situations, it's where younger people just decided they were going to leave home, and they try to make it on their own, and they find out that most people really don't want them once they're homeless and on the street, that the people they thought were their friends really aren't their friends. They're not going to provide a bedroom for them, a place to sleep, a place to live. And in most cases, those people end up having to fare for themselves, and, and they don't do well at it. I know that uh, kind of like alcoholism, sometimes a person has to reach a bottom in their life. They have to have some crisis in their life that makes them realize that they have a serious problem. They can't continue to ignore it. And while others may have been trying to talk to them about their problems, whether it's emotional, psychological, or financial, or whatever, uh, alcohol-related, drug-related, they may have realized they had the problem, but they weren't yet ready to accept what was needed to be done to try to correct their problem until they hit some sort of a bottom-of-the-barrel situation. And that's when perhaps someone is more able to approach them, counsel them, and pull them up and out of the hole that they're in and, and guide them and steer them and, and take them to places where they can get some assistance or help and try to restart their life again. And how can kids find these mentors? How can they seek them out? And how can someone become a, a mentor? Well, there's an awful lot of government organizations all over the country, and it's not common for somebody who's in the situation I just described to you to go looking for help. Um, and it's usually going to be whoever sees them. Uh, it can be a police officer, people in government service, social workers, or it can be citizens who are aware that these people are there who can try to befriend them and offer or extend their hand to them, saying, if you need some help, someone to talk to, I'm here for you. It can be those kinds of people who might do something for them once in a while, provide them with something to eat, uh, try talking to them, and getting to know them, not as a friend, but as someone that that person can turn to when they're ready. Do you know if there are certain areas that are impacted more than others? I think I read in the Time article that California is actually has one of the worst problems, if not if not the worst. Your knowledge is as good as mine. Mm -hmm. Yes, I've, I've read that too, that California has the highest rate of homelessness than any other state in the country. And I'm not sure if that's because it's the most heavily populated state in the country or if that number is based on a percent, percentage. But yes, California has the dubious distinction for having the highest number of runaways. Any more information about resources to, to tap into for families or homeless children and, and or how to reach out, out more or any way anyone can help. There's a lot of people um, all over the world who are in dire straits, 
who are in, in poor living conditions. And I don't want to make it seem like um, our runaways or our homeless people have a far worse situation than many people who live in places that are less desirable, because I know how bad the situations can be in other countries, especially third world countries. But in talking just about the United States, I feel as though the, there are a lot of services available, and, and hopefully people will provide those services to those who are most desperately in need and help people who need a helping hand and be more understanding of a lot of what contributes towards the dilemma. There's more to all this than what I've said. Uh, there are a lot of people who are having difficulty assimilating into our cultures, and it's not just one, who are having difficulty uh, accepting that they are not being accepted. And, and so in that regard, I'm reaching out to a couple of ladies from China who married U.S. citizens who have not been able to find friends, who have felt essentially uh, abandoned in a foreign country where they don't, they don't know anybody. And they're adjusting to the new situation is creating a severe hardship for them. And so to try to help them make that assimilation, uh, whether they're homeless or not, realizing that these two ladies, for example, feel homeless, although they're not, um, is to have some sympathy for what people go through in trying to make the adjustments that are required, whether they're coming in from outside of the country or whether they're raised from within. There are a lot of people who need a lot of assistance and understanding, uh, a helping hand, and I hope that more and more people will be able to bring themselves to offer or extend that hand to give these people a feeling as though somebody cares. Right, and what's the best way to go about if if someone chooses to help a homeless child or teen in their neighborhood or in their community? What's the best way to go about that, and that would well, be, but benefit them? I'm I'm not a, a professional in this regard. I'm not a, a therapist or anything like that. Uh, but in my opinion, is to recognize who they are and to try to keep an eye out for them, uh, to try to engage them if you can. I know that when I've approached some younger people who appear to be homeless on the street and they're susceptible to joining gangs and other things, is to just stop and talk to them once in a while and to try to engage them. Try to make eye contact. That's very hard. They'll look the other way because they don't want to be known or recognized. They want to continue on doing whatever it is that they're doing even though it may be bad for them. And to try to establish a, a very small relationship, one of at least recognition, and to occasionally just stop and say who you are and, and say if you need someone to talk to, uh, you know where to find me. And uh, gradually over a period of time, that person might be able to nod at that person and start some sort of communication at some point, but most particularly when and if they're in a serious situation, something, something very bad has happened. And at that moment in time, they are looking for someone who can give them a helping hand. Okay, Walter, thank you so much for your time and sharing your stories, and congratulations on the books, and, and, and what's next for you? Well, The Promiscuous Puppeteer just came out, and it's getting great reviews and ratings on Goodreads and Amazon, so much so that I'm being, it's being suggested to me that I write one or one of two other books. One would be uh, a memoir or kind of autobiography about the life, part of which I've just told you about, and then my, my career and the things that I was able to do during my career. The other option is to write a sequel to The Promiscuous Puppeteer because so far everybody's loving it, and that just makes me feel wonderful. Those characters are still alive in my head, and they're ready and willing to jump in and start helping me write 
another story. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> thank you. Well, we look forward to it, and uh, thank you again. And is there a website that you can direct? Yes, my website you? is walterbbiondi.com. Or to make it easier, folks can go on Facebook and just type in the name of my book, The Promiscuous Puppeteer, and that'll take them to my fan page, where they will also see the link to my website, and they can get all the information they need about me or my new book. Wonderful. Thank you so much, and uh, have a great day, and hopefully we'll, we'll speak to you again Thank in the you, near Jerry. future. It's been a pleasure, a real joy, a delight. I appreciate it. You take care, and have a happy holidays. Oh, you too. <laughs> take Thank care. You. Bye-bye. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for Science Questions. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m. Offering muesli with fresh fruit, walnuts, and yogurt. Breakfast menu at crumbbrothers.com and the College of Science at Utah State University. Public outreach information on our Facebook page, Cache Valley Science Kids. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information at usu.edu science.